Each minute follows the previous minute inexorably. And so inexorably, after the last three years, we have reached the last passage in the book of John. This is a red-letter day for more reasons than one. Please turn with me to John chapter 21, if you would, and read aloud as I read from the word of the Lord, verses 20 through the end of the chapter. You will remember, if you know this passage or if you were with us this past Sunday, that Jesus has just rebuked Peter for his denial of Christ, asking him three times, do you love me? And Peter responding three times, Lord, you know that I love you. And through the process of this correction, Peter is reconciled to the Lord and um, given his work once again to do, restored completely. And so now we have Peter questioning the Lord as a result of a statement that the Lord said to him, in previous verses, and I'm going to read those previous verses as well, beginning with verse 18, as the Lord is speaking to Peter. I tell you the truth, <clears throat> when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. And this disciple is referring to John. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that in your word are found the way, the truth, and the life because they point us to Christ, who is the hope of salvation who, uh, for all whose faith is placed in him. Teach us the truth of your word. Cause us to live our lives in a manner that is pleasing to you because we love you and serve you. We ask your forgiveness of our sins. We pray that we would humbly approach your word and seek your Holy Spirit's application of it to cleaning our lives. And I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, because it is your word alone that is holy and just and true. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the joys and blessings of Scripture is that because the Holy Spirit works through it, it is living and active Sharper than a double-edged sword is the words of Hebrews. Words tell us in Hebrews, the book to the Hebrew Christians. And so it's fascinating to look at a passage such as this and to find things that jump out at you that uh, perhaps never jumped out at you before, or if they did, you didn't remember them. 
But it's interesting, I would just point out one thing that struck me as I was reading it again this morning, a minute ago. It's interesting, um, some people in life seem to have a tendency to have a preoccupation with language. Some people don't have a preoccupation with language, and they say things sort of willy-nilly as they come. And then there are other people who have a desire to be explicit and precise. Now, as you look at this here, you find that John is, is a man who is explicit and precise. Uh, different people have different needs. One of the reasons, of course, for John's being explicit and precise is because he is writing the Word of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fascinating as you look at this passage, verses 27 through, excuse me, I'm seeing wrong, verses 22 and 23, that John is looking precisely and explicitly at the language of Christ. This helps us as we approach Scripture to understand it, to realize that in the day, in, in the words of our day, that words count. Words count. Not just phrases count. Not just the sense counts. But those little tiny details, such as words, and so because of what Jesus said, some of the brothers said, oh, did you hear that? John's going to live and not die. And John says, um, excuse me, but that is not what he said. He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return. What is that to you? <laughs> There's a difference between I want him to remain alive what is that to you? And if I want him to remain alive, there's a conditional sense there. And so I, I would just encourage us to remember the scripture is given to us by God who is precise. He's not imprecise. He doesn't desire to give us things that can be translated willy nilly. Take it as you please. But instead, he desires for us to examine what he says closely and clearly to find a clear reading of what he is teaching. If you remember accounts of the Old Testament, I would suggest that in looking at the story of Saul and David, you would find an Old Testament passage that would shed a great deal of light on this passage. I will get into that in a moment. But one of the other things that I found, and don't worry, I'm not going to ramble... <laughs> throughout my sermon this morning. One of the other things that I've found uh, interesting in looking at chapter 21 specifically uh, and, and the end of chapter 20, the time following the resurrection of Christ, is I found it fascinating because certain things have jumped out at me. It seemed to me in these passages, and this has never, it never occurred to me before, that these passages are teaching about our life together as Christians in many ways. They are details of the relationship of the Christians following the resurrection of Christ. They're details of the Christians gathering together for fellowship and worship. They're details of the Christians going out to fish together, the, the apostles. And they're details of, of uh, the correction of Peter in a public manner, as we saw this past Sunday. And there are details today of what you do when you find out that you think the Lord's going to treat your brother better than you think he's going to treat you. <laughs> so 
So it's been fascinating to me to look at these passages all the time before I, you know, you read them and you say, isn't that a magnificent story? What happened following the resurrection of Christ? And then you see more deeply interwoven in this passage, the relationship of these Christians one to another and how the Lord is instructing them in this and what happens and how they deal with the problems and the difficulties. It seems like a short primer on how the church is to survive and relate together and what is to be important for them, how they're to handle the, the joys of life, how they are to handle the difficulties of life, and how they are to continue. As John quoted Christ in chapter 13, verse 34, Christ saying, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so I think we see in these passages Christ instructing them and them carrying it out, this love for one another in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. So I would encourage you as well. I'm not going to plumb the depths of these passages. I haven't plumbed them over the last several weeks. Look at them from that standpoint and see what you find about our life together as Christians. Following the resurrection of Christ, see how many fascinating things that they teach about how we should relate to one another and what we should be doing as Christians. And tell me what you learned. Be excited to hear it. One of my mother's vivid memories as a child was having a visiting uncle sent up to bed before she was sent to bed, although she was a little little girl. Her uncle was somewhat, had some mental disturbances, and so he was treated as a child. And as he went up the stairs, she vividly remembers him turning to look over the stairs, pointing an accusing finger at her and saying, what about her? Why doesn't she have to go to bed? In her childhood terror, thus being singled out, mother understood the innate selfishness in this question and the sure and certain fact that when such a question is asked, it is not because the questioner wishes well of the person about whom the question is asked. So we see Peter pointing to John and he turns around. He sees John. He says to the Lord, Lord, in essence, you've told me this about me. What about him? What's going to happen to him? What does his future hold? Why is there a reason for comparison in this passage? As I read in verse 18, Christ said this to Peter. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Think about this prophecy. How would you feel if I were to read this as a prophecy to you or you were to get this prophecy from someone? It's not the same as getting it directly from the Lord, but consider it. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
I think if we consider that as a prophecy addressed to us, we have some comprehension for the reason for this comparison. And Peter's turning to John and saying, but Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Because we see that this is not a prophecy filled with any pleasure or anticipation. This is a prophecy that is filled with dread. Particularly in the context, I mean, I can, I can understand the dread in this prophecy. I'm sure you can as well. <clears throat> but imagine it again in the context that Christ has been arrested in secrecy, tried in secrecy, killed publicly, crucified in an excruciating manner. And it is shortly after that point in time. So the sense of being taken where you do not want to want to go and being killed is very real for these apostles and would have been very real for Peter at this time. Peter, doubtless, in the context of this situation, was wishing that he could get the Lord to change this prophecy. How do you get someone to change their minor actions? Well, I think... We remember how to do it, or we could ask one of the uh, children or young people present. One of the ways that you do it is if they are in authority over you. It is valuable to suggest that there is inequity going on. Right? Is this not a useful tool? (laughs) This is why employers write employee manuals. So that things will be handled by the book Everybody will be treated the same. So if you are trying to change the mind, the actions of the person in authority, sometimes it works to say, but you, but, but, he didn't get that. When he did that, he didn't get in trouble. Or, but, but you, what you gave him that. Look at what you gave him. Aren't you going to give me? This is a daily occurrence, isn't it? In every situation. And even if we, at times, hopefully, have the maturity to grow out of expressing that, how many of us would truthfully say that thought never occurs to us in our situation? I don't see any hands raised. (laughs) I think we all have a sense that we are comparing with others. We're thinking of the situation that others find themselves in. We're saying, am I getting a fair shake? Should it be happening to me this way? And of course, sometimes we think to ourselves and say, boy, I'm sure glad I'm getting what I'm getting instead of what they're getting. But if things are ever unpleasant, then we can do what Peter is doing and say, what about him? Can it be any worse than when you are old, you will be dressed by someone else and led to a place you do not want to go? Well, if he said something that was ambiguous, uncertain in nature, then John might not have made that comparison because he might have been afraid to draw the Lord's attention to someone who was going to have it worse. But in this situation, excuse me, Peter, in this situation, Peter is probably relatively certain the comparison is going to be valid because it doesn't sound like a prophecy you could get worse than. And so perhaps by this question, he can cause the Lord maybe to turn, maybe to change. And so we're reminded of the truth about the Lord. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plans. We are reminded as well that the Lord is not guilty of injustice. 
So that basis for asking him to look at the situation that he has in store for someone else. Reconsider then what he has in store for Peter is not going to work. Those of us who are parents or in authority, whether in the classroom or elsewhere, know that there are times when we are glad someone has brought up to our attention what we did in another situation. I know oftentimes I'll forget what I did in certain situations. So if my kids come to me and say, but, you know, we did this before or you did that with him or her, I'm glad because I don't want them to have the sense that I'm unfair for treating them differently, grossly differently. But the Lord is never unjust. And so he is not going to change his mind, number one, and he certainly won't change it because of injustice. Whatever he told Peter would be the way it would be, no matter what the future held for John. This lesson is an invaluable one for believers, a powerful lesson which the Holy Spirit directs John to use in closing his gospel. This lesson, the issues surrounding this lesson are at the root of Eve's sin and taking the fruit from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. The issues surrounding this lesson are the root cause of Cain's murder of his brother Abel. These issues lie behind David's sin with Bathsheba. These issues lie behind Lucifer's rebellion against God. One of the significant issues that summarizes this issue is that envy is deadly. Envy is deadly. You and I must understand that God gives us what he wants us to have. He gives Nathan what he wants Nathan to have. He gives Patricia what he wants Patricia to have. He gives Fred what he wants Fred to have. He gives each one of us the things that he wants for us. The concept of that is broad because we realize that he is our creator. And who knows us better than our creator to give the things to me, Nathan, that I need. If he applies that template to David, it doesn't fit David because David is utterly different from Nathan. Many people think that all they should look for from God. This is important for us to realize. Many people think that all that they should look for or expect from God are good things. It's true that all good gifts come from our heavenly father. But he does not protect those who love him from harmful things from testing and tribulation, even from persecution and martyrdom. And it's very important for us to realize, again, a very small phrase, but very significant in the passage where Christ prophesies how Peter is going to die. Verse 19, John makes this small statement. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would die. I'm misquoting. He says, the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, does that not shed a completely new light on the on what's going on here? Bad martyrdom turning out to the glory of God. It seems oftentimes the Christians have, have gotten confused that we think in our mind God couldn't possibly be pouring out this difficulty or unpleasantness upon me, (coughs) upon my loved ones, 
Because he doesn't want me to be hurt, does he? And yet we forget he's our father. And what father likes to see his children suffer? So we forget that he is intensely identified with us. That Christ is our brother and our savior. And do we think he is enjoying the difficulties that we suffer? And yet he gives us these things in many ways. And it seems, uh, it seems even strange to say it. He gives us these difficulties even as a treasure. What is the martyrdom of Peter? Is it terrible? Yes. Is it a treasure? Well, let me ask you. Is it horrendous for something to happen to Peter that brings glory to God? Very clearly, if Peter's martyrdom glorifies God, then it is a precious treasure. As we think of the, of the, of the book of Revelation that John also wrote, we think of the concept of the martyrs who are crying out for God to avenge their blood upon those who have killed them, those who have persecuted them. And there's a sense in heaven that there is a precious and special place under the altar for the martyrs. These people who have glorified God in a way that in the context of this earth is more glorious than any other. And yet in the context of this prophecy, Peter is, I think it would be fair to say, envious or jealous of what John's situation might be. We can give thanks to the Lord that there are many people who are willing to die for their faith today. Many people suffering for their faith. Many people enslaved, imprisoned. Many people persecuted in many ways. And many people being killed because either they trust in Christ and make their declaration public or because they are seeking to tell others about Christ. So should we all seek to live and die as the Apostle John did of old age? Would certainly be more pleasant if it could be this way. But Christ did not simply refer to symbolism when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Cross was a vivid image in their day and age. It doesn't have that imagery today. We have all kinds of beautiful things made into crosses. Only for one reason. Because the cross symbolizes the sacrifice by which the sins of the world were born upon the body, the back of Christ. The cross is not beautiful. And so for Christ to say, take up your cross and follow me, he's calling us to a life of sacrifice. And that is anathema, completely the opposite to the concept where we look at the pleasantries, the lack of difficulties, the ease of the life of others, and we say, but Lord, that's what I want. I want it the way he has it. I want it the way she has it. If we understand this, then envy is put in its place. We realize that jealousy has no place in the heart of a Christian. Now, does it live within my heart? Does jealousy live within my heart? Does envy live within your hearts? Yes, unmistakably. It is like the the monster that Christ says is crouching, ready to pounce upon Cain. 
if he does not get control of his attitude towards God, which is expressed in his attitude to his brother, Abel, whose sacrifice is acceptable to God while his isn't. This is crouching at your door and you must master it. I must master jealousy and envy, particularly in the context of believers. And certainly there is no situation in which you or I should be truly envious of those who are not believers because we have hope for eternity. That is something that we proclaim to the world. It's something that all should want. And yet in the context of the church among believers, it is easy for us to look at the situations of others and think, enumerate the things that we are envious of, the things that we would rather have that someone else has that I don't have. We can think of those things, can't we? <laughs> would that we couldn't. Would that they didn't pop into our minds. <laughs> so, right? Say, no, get out of there. <laughs> they, they don't even have to be bidden to come in. We're doing the Peter thing constantly, aren't we? Well, what about him? Again, we're mature enough not to say, well, what about him? But it is a difficulty that we must constantly strive against. It's not something that being a pastor makes you immune to. It's not something that being in anything makes you immune to. It's not something that being an apostle makes you immune to. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with it? Well, I think the way we deal with it is by understanding that God is in charge of Nathan, as God is in charge of each one of you. And as my creator and your creator, he understands what I need and he will give me what I need. He's given me particular talents, skills, gifts of the Holy Spirit that enable me to do the things that he's called me to do. Not enable me to do the things that he's called you to do. Now, we've got, uh, let's see, at least three people in our congregation who are regularly teaching seventh graders. And that may not be your gift. I was talking with Stacy uh, some time ago, and he was talking about how in their church they were working with with the infants in the nursery. And... And then the person in charge of the Sunday school came to them and said, we have an opening in the seventh grade area. Would you like to teach seventh grade? And they said, yes. Now, how many people are going to choose teaching seventh grade over sitting in the nursery, taking care of the kids? (laughs) But the point is that he gives each one of us gifts. so that we can do the things that he calls us to do and be the blessing to others that he has called upon us to be. Now, what do we do in this? We must learn contentment with what we have and who we are. This is the constant lesson throughout Scripture. Lesson of learning contentment. How do we learn contentment? Again, it goes back to the beginning, to my saying God has given me what I need and made me who I need to be. And therefore, because he knows who I am and where I am, I simply need to glorify him in this situation and be glad in it. What about Moses? Forty years out of Egypt, 
being a shepherd. Nothing. Many people would say that was doing nothing, being nothing. And yet it was the Lord's preparation of him. Maybe he needed to beat into him patience for 40 years. Patience, patience, patience. So that when he had 40 more years with the Israelites in the wilderness, that he would be the humble man that he was. And so God is the one who knows what we need. And we must trust him in that. How do we have contentment in our situations? I think one of the ways that we do it is we stop looking and comparing. That's difficult to do. But we must make a habit of disciplining our minds, not to turn around as Peter did, not to say, oh yeah, him. And all of a sudden, everything around us and everyone around us becomes a basis for looking and comparing. Stop looking to compare. Look to say hello. (laughs) But don't look to say, what about him? Look to give thanks. Now, this is difficult. The flip side of envy and jealousy of others is the fact that we must learn to accept gladly the Lord's blessing of others. Truly, it is, as Christ said, if I want John to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Since I am not John, what what is it to me? It means nothing to me. For it doesn't change my life one bit. However, as John is my brother, since I have learned contentment with the Lord's plans for me, if the Lord is going to bless John in this way, I need to learn, because John is my brother, to give thanks for his plans for John. I am glad for John and the fact that he is blessing him in this way. Can we do that? Again, it's a matter of discipline. A matter, even, of when we see someone and we are tempted to compare, of giving thanks to the Lord for the blessings he's given to others. Is it not true that if you find envy or jealousy in your hearts towards someone else, that you have a hard time praying God's blessing upon them? I do. You may as well. And so at that point, the, the lesson that I need to enforce upon myself is the discipline of praying blessing upon that person in their situation. Or bless them. Pour out greater blessings upon them. Keep me from being jealous or envious. <clears throat> Within the church, this is crucial. The scourge of comparison must be put away because you and I must realize that Peter and John are both necessary. You and I are necessary because God has knit us together as a body of Christ. Not as separate bodies to each function autonomously, but the church is based upon the basis of different people fulfilling different tasks And together, they get the job done. Not individually, they get the job done. And this is why it is so important for us to realize that in community is the way God desires for us to be. He wants us to be together as a church. He wants us to function together because when there are parts missing, there are parts missing and things that do not get done or do not get done well. I was talking with a... um, a friend the other day talking about a, a man. I, I forget the context of the conversation. We're talking about one-armed baseball players. 
But we had a fellow at, at McAllister College where I went to school who was one-armed, and he could, he could catch that ball and throw it faster than you could ever imagine. But the thing is that you comment on these things. It's astounding that this man can do this well with this difficulty. Think of how well he could do without the difficulty. The point in the context of the church is this. Yes, you can function when there are pieces missing and parts missing, parts that are not functioning. The job is done best when it's done by people working together. And the only way that people can work together is by putting aside jealousy, envy, and ambition and giving thanks for my giving thanks for what I have and for what you have. And praying for God's blessing on you and you doing the same to me. Where there is envy and jealousy, the church will not function. We must discipline our hearts so that we are content with what we have and seek through the power of God to make the most of it. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for your word, the Gospel of John. It is part of your word that is consistent with all that you teach in Scripture. We pray that we would learn to study your word with anticipation, eager for those things that you have yet to teach us. We would humble ourselves before you. We pray that we would humble ourselves in every way, that we would give thanks for the blessings that you pour out upon our brothers and sisters, that we would pray for them that you would pour out more blessings upon them, that we would not have jealousy towards those who are, uh, have better jobs than we do, we would not have jealousy or envy towards those who have more wealth, who have better family relationships, who, have, who, are, who are married or not married, who have children or don't have them, that we would not let any of these things cross our minds or our hearts but when they do, that by your grace that we would ask your strength to put them aside and to pray your blessings upon those about whom we are thinking. Give us contentment with who we are and what we have. And by your grace, help us to live in such a way, whether we are blessed with pleasant, joyful things or great difficulties such as martyrdom. We pray that in all of these things, you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.